be open to Genesis 14. This is another first, again, foundational. Uh, it's the first time in the Bible a all-out war is mentioned where some kings come and conquer other kings. Now, it was going on before because in this battle, this war, these kings had already put pressure on the other kings and they were paying tribute to them. So we're going to look at that. But our warfare is not carnal. It's not of the flesh. Our warfare as Christians is a spiritual war. The Bible says in Corinthians that the lost man cannot understand the things of God. He says they are alien to him for they are spiritually discerned. I'll take that a step further. I believe that as Christians, we ought to see the news with spiritual eyes. When I was a kid, my dad loved to read the newspaper. He wasn't a fast reader, but he, uh, he, he would read the paper. And he used to tell me as a kid that the word of God was as current as the newspaper. And I, that said in my mind, at least to think that way, and you ought to think that way, what's going on in the news, number one, it is not what's really happening uh, on two fronts. Number one, they misreport most of it. And number two, what you see is not what's happening. There's something underneath that. And that's what we're going to see today in this battle, this war. God is up to something else. And he gives a long description at the beginning about the battle, about the kings that were involved in it. But again, it's the first mention of warfare in the Bible. Again, probably happening before this. But it's the first time God brings it up to us. But here's what I want you to take home with you today. The war you fight is spiritual, not physical. We, we mess up when we are distracted by the physical and don't see the spiritual in it. Sometimes there's a battle God calls us into, but it is for a spiritual reason or a, spirit, a spiritual battle. And that is where the fight is really fought is in the spirit world. In, in fact, uh, I, I'm going to go ahead and apply this a little bit now. Um, I, I threatened to apply it later, but I'm afraid I'll forget and that is, sorry, I hate to drink in front of y'all, but you don't understand how dry my mouth gets. Um, it just, it looks gross to me. Anyway, um, and, and here's what I want you to apply. God has called the Christian to be a spiritual soldier for him. Now, that's not a physical military. That is a spiritual, but God, the Bible is written with very militaristic uh, point to it. Uh, if, you, if you can read the book of Revelation and not see the spiritual battle and the battles going on, then I, I don't know what Bible you got there, but it's not the one that God gave us. He gave us where we are warriors in a fight. Now, we don't, again, we don't take a sword and, and like Peter did, and Peter cut off a guy's ear. Uh, that's not what he called us to. He called us to spiritual battle. And so I, I want to ask you a question. If we're in a spiritual battle, where has God placed this group of soldiers in that battle? This is an easy answer. Y'all are overthinking it. Stanton, thank you. Somebody said it. Stanton, Augusta County. Now, the next question is the hard one where I'm doing this to myself. What are we doing about that battle? So we come in, sit on our blessed assurance, want to hear a good word, stirs our heart, then go get lunch, right? We don't think about that we are in a warfare every day and that we ought to be telling people about Christ. That's how we win the battle. Psalms 2 tells us that God is going to subdue the nations of the world under Jesus' feet. And so since God is going to do that, he gives us an opportunity to join with him in that work and tell people about Christ because he's going to save people so they'll be under submission to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, some people will never come under submission to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's just a fact by observation 
and scripture. But Jesus one day will physically return and that's when it's going to become a physical kingdom uh, with a physical king that we can see uh, in that day. We are already in that kingdom. That kingdom is already existing in the church. Okay, good. Amen. And by the church, I don't mean everybody you see here. Because there are people in this room or watching us online who maybe even go to church or say they're saved, but they're not really in the church because they don't know Christ. It's a, it's a horrible thing for us to think we're okay and not be. I, the Bible says to examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. And, and I'm not going to give you a list of how you can tell. You're either in communion with God or you're not. And if you're not, you're in a dangerous spot. So if you need to repent, you need to repent. If you need to get saved, you need to get saved. So you'll be in communion with God. So I, we're going to use this passage today to look a little bit at this spiritual uh, warfare. Uh, and, and Lot is kind of key in this. So I'm going to read one verse. You don't have to stand up. But please look at it with respect with me in, cha in chapter 14 and verse 12. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. Now, the first 11 verses before that, I, I was admitting this to Pastor Andy this week, it's a lot of names. And one of the names I have a great struggle pronouncing. And it seems like a lot of people have a great struggle announcing because I listened to one guy talking about this chapter. And he said, if you can't say his name, just say the big cheese because he is the head king of these people and his name sounds like Cheddar Olomar or something. So it's Cato Olomar, okay? And that's the best I can do. Pastor Andy can say it perfectly. I can't do it. So I'm going to struggle with that. But here's, here's what's going on. The kings there in Sodom and Gomorrah in those cities are paying tribute to these kings from the north. Uh, the king of uh, what is current day Iran, that's Kedileomar. Uh, then other kings from Iraq and these areas north. And here's why they are paying tribute. They came down and made them pay tribute. They, they subdue them at some point. Like I said, we don't know when that happened. This is when God brings it in late in the, late in the game. For 12 years, they've been paying tribute. Then they say, not anymore. We're done with that. We're not going to do it. Isn't it interesting on July 4th that this is where we land in Genesis because we got tired of paying 4% tax on tea. <laughs> Wow, 4%. Wouldn't you love it if we only paid 4% tax on anything? And uh, so we revolted, but, but it didn't work out the same for these guys. So it took a year for these other kings to come down. Why is it so important there? I, I'll tell you why that area was so important. It still is. Israel and the whole pal that whole area of Palestine, Canaan, that whole area there... If you never thought about it, I want you to picture that map in your mind if you can. Some people don't like maps, don't look at them. I love maps. There are three continents that meet in that little piece of land. Europe, Asia, and Africa. They all meet right there. So this is where all the trade is going through. Up and down, in and out, all over. So these kings from Iraq, Iran, modern day Iraq and Iran, they come down and they make these kings pay them tribute from the trade industry. Sort of like one nation paying taxes to another. Well, these kings decided enough is enough, and so they quit. Well, it took a year for the other kings to come down because it was a great distance. 
And um, the king of Sodom, king of Gomorrah, in, in verse 8, the king of Adma, the king of uh, Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out and joined battle in the valley of Siddim with Kedorlaomer of Elam, title king of Goyim, it goes on and on and on. Verse 16. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and the kings of the Sodom and Gomorrah f- fled. Some fell into them, and the rest fled into the hill country. So the enemy, verse 11, look at that with me, took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah. How much is all? All. All is all, and that's all all is. We're going to come into that again. So next time I'll ask you to say it with me. Verse 12, they took all, verse 11, took all their provisions, went their way. Verse 12, I've already read it. Look at it again. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Something in that verse should have caught your attention. And it's not that they took all of Lot's possessions and family. That was kind of covered. Why would God point Lot out? Two reasons. One, Lot is a righteous man. The Bible says he is, but he's living in a very sinful place. But the word in is what the word you should have caught. In chapter 13, Lot lived near Sodom. In chapter 14, he lives in Sodom. You get close to sin, you're going to go into it. And uh, later on, I'm going to tell you not to kiss your sin goodbye. You get too close to sin, it will draw you in. And that's what happens to Lot. But notice this, Lot is captured. Why is he captured? Because he's living amongst the sinful people. And when, you, when you're there, you don't have to look for war. War comes to you. When you're living in a sinful place, war comes to you. When you walk with the Lord, I'm not saying you won't have battles, because you will. But guess what God knows? God knows the secret of where Satan is holed up, ready to attack you. It doesn't catch you so much by surprise. I'm not sure it caught these guys by surprise, but all these kings could not defeat the ones that are invading. They, they lose, and all the goods of their nations, of their, of their peoples, went to those other kings. I want you to keep that in mind, because at the end of the story, it's, it's super important. So we come to verse 13, and now we're getting into it. My mother-in-law called me between services. Actually, my wife, she's with her mom, and... and uh, and Janice said, how'd you like Stuart's sermon? She said, I like the end better than the beginning. I said, me too. But you got to get to that beginning to understand what's going on later, okay? So we're going to jump into the good part now. Verse 13, then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew. By the way, Hebrew means, the word means a wanderer or someone who journeys. Not Dion DiMucci, but you got to be old to know what I just said. Uh, but Abram the Hebrew, the wanderer, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshkel and Anar. Catch this. These were allies of Abram. Are you living in Sin City where nobody is your friend? They will act like your friend, but they're not your friend. Or are you like Abram, living among allies who will encourage you and strengthen you? Listen, we come to church, number one, God told us to. Number two, he warned us about not coming to church. You say, well, what, just coming in the building? No, 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 no. We come to have fellowship with one another, to encourage one another, to motivate one another. According to Hebrews, it says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together because that's the manner of some, but, but you come together to encourage and, and edify one another. It says, even much more as you see the day approaching. Friend, if the news ought to drive you to the church. 
the things we're seeing, I, I don't have a lot of good news for you. It's not going to get any better. It may, I won't say not going to, that's very final. Something could change, God could do something, but God's bringing the world to an end. And we are crazy if we think God's going to leave us at peace our whole life and never face any kind of battle. But the battle is spiritual, not physical. We need to begin to take this city for Christ, this county for Christ. We need to be telling people about Jesus. This is a war that we are in, and we need each other. We come in here, not to come into a building, but that we can run into each other. We can encourage one another. We ought to be doing it outside of these walls as well. But by the way, in Hebrews, when it says not to do that, the next verse says, for if you go on sinning willfully... It is very much God's will that you be among brothers and sisters, friends, allies, because there is a battle to be fought. And Abram leads that fight. Look what he does. In verse uh, uh, 14, when Abram heard his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Now that verse just begins to open up, for me, a lot of questions. How did, number one, I don't know how big your house is, but you got 318 trained warriors in your house. That's a big house. Now, of course, it's not a physical house. He's intense, but it means his household, people that serve him, people that are watching sheep and farming with him. 318 of them are trained to fight. Who trained them? That's my question. Who trained them? I, I, I think about this kind of stuff, and so it caught my attention. Even more so, look at the next verse. He divided his forces against them at, by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Abram is employing military tactics. Again, where did he learn this? Maybe God told him. I don't know. I, I just, that's one of those questions. I get to heaven, I probably won't care. But right now, I would really like to know the answer. Because Abram does something we do today, attack at night when everybody's asleep or at least their systems are down. Some of our guys sleep all day and fight all night. That's just how they do it so they'll be ready to go. He divided his force. He didn't just come marching straight up so they could kill them all at one blow. They divide, they attack from various fronts. But catch this, 319 men attack a coalition of kings and armies that the coalition of the cities of the plains down there, Sodom, Gomorrah, and the other cities could not defeat. And 319 men defeat them, and not only defeat them, but chase them all the way north of Damascus. We looked that up. It's about 60 to 75 miles. They chased them that far. They whooped them. If you're southern, you know what that means. I mean, they tore them up. In fact, look what the Bible says in verse 18. They brought back, what does it say? I didn't think y'all were saying it. Somebody say it. What's that verse 18? What did they bring back? All. How much is all? All is all. That's all all is. Abram brings back all the possessions. And he also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Nobody got hurt. Nothing was lost. God gave it all back to Abram. What happened in chapter 13? Abram said to Lot, you pick a spot. I'll go the other one. 
what, where you want to go? He said, I want to go down there where it's all green and there's a lot of wealth down there. Abram said, fine. Abram goes north, God encourages him. And, Abr- and Lot, who had chosen to make easy money to get all the wealth, to go down there where everybody's rich, has lost it all. Now who owns it? Abram owns it. In fact, in a couple of verses, Abram is going to use that, those things he caught in two different ways. And we're going to look at that in a minute. But I want to point something out to you. Why does Abram have the authority to take... He's taken all the possessions of Sodom, Gomorrah, and all the places around them, and now he owns it. Why does he own it? Because to the victor goes the spoils. Those other kings didn't get it back. Abram got it back. It's his. It is now his. Lot went to get rich, and Abram, thinking if you, I go where Abram's going, he's going to have a tough time. And now Abram not only has his, but he has all of theirs. The meek shall inherit the earth. It doesn't matter what happens to me in this life. There's coming a day where I will be allowed to rule with God's angels on this planet. And I just get it. The reason God lets people get rich is so he can give it to Christians later. Not in this lifetime, but later. Just want you to catch that. That you got to look at this with spiritual eyes and go, you know what? I'm content with very little now because the retirement plan for the Christian is out of this world. It's awesome. So Abram's informed. He goes to war and he brings it all back. But now we run into the most, one of the most interesting characters in the Bible. One of the most disputed characters in the Bible. It's just a few verses. Look at verse 17. Now after his return... From the defeat of the uh, King Cheddar, uh, Cater Laomor, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. Okay, that makes sense. Then the Bible just drops Sodom and it introduces somebody, and Melchizedek. Now Melchizedek is, is, is a, a person that we're not sure about him. Here in the Old Testament, his name is mentioned, says a few things about him, and goes away. You need to turn over, not right now, go home and read Hebrews chapter 7 about Melchizedek. He's a very interesting character. Let me show you why. So this man Melchizedek comes out. King of Salem comes out. His name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. He is the king of Salem. Now, we say Salem. Actually, in, in Arabic, the word for peace is Salim. Did I say that close? Okay, thanks. Got some Arab, speak, uh, uh, yeah, Arab speakers over there. And then in Hebrew, it's Shalom. When Jesus appeared after his resurrection, he says, Shalom, peace be unto you. It means chill out. It's okay. Shaka. That's how they say it in Hawaii. Just, this is cool. Everything's fine. But what about that word Salem? It later becomes Jerusalem or Jerusalem. Say, so, oh, okay, it's the king of Jerusalem. Yeah, but look at your map. 60, 75 miles away from these guys. And Abram is all the way back down to the Dead Sea area, and Melchizedek shows up. Why? His stuff didn't get taken. The dispute is, is Melchizedek just a regular old king or is this Jesus in the Old Testament? 
Hebrews 7 lets us know that Melchizedek is at least a type of Christ. Let me show you why before I show you what Abraham does. He's a type of Christ because, well, I need to read it to show it to you. He comes out in verse 18, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Bread and wine. Where have we seen that before? Oh, yeah, communion. He's the king of righteousness, the king of peace. He comes out with bread and wine, gives that to, to Abram. And then it says he's the priest of the most high God. And by the way, this is the first time God's name is written this way. It's El Elyon, God Almighty. Is the, is the translation of it basically for ourselves. We were just singing that in a song using the English words. He was a priest, or the most high God, I should say. El Shaddai is almighty, but El Elyon, the most high God. There's only one other guy in Scripture or in all of history that could be both a priest of God and a king. It was Jesus and Melchizedek. Now, in the Bible here in the Old Testament, it doesn't tell us where he came from. Jesus' father was God. He didn't have an earthly father. This guy's neither mother or father. And he doesn't tell us when he died. So he has eternal life. It's a picture of that. Melchizedek may have been just a regular guy, and this is what God made him to be. We don't know. I personally believe it is an Old Testament representation, I mean, an Old Testament uh, appearance of Christ. Because, well, I just believe that. And it goes on to say this. Oh, that, that's the other reason. See, in Hebrews 7, it says Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Why does it say that? There, by the way, there was no high priest of God back then. Moses and the law is hundreds of years away. So there are no priests. There's no sacrificial system. They sacrifice, but there's no God-ordained sacrificial system. So once Abram has a son who has a son who has 12 sons, one of those sons named Levi, as they're leaving uh, Egypt after uh, all those years of captivity, 300 years of captivity, God says, okay, all those that are in the tribe of Levi, those are going to be our priests. And Aaron's going to be the high priest. Moses was of the tribe of Levi. Just catch that. Moses and Aaron are brothers. They're both Levites. So Aaron becomes the first high priest. What tribe is Jesus from? Judah. He can't be a priest, yet he is our high priest. And Hebrews 7 says, because he's in the order of Melchizedek. God was never going to save us through the priesthood, which means one who stands for God. He is never going to save us through the priesthood of the Levitical priests. And yet, we like to pick and choose out Old Testament laws. I see Christians ought to be doing this or not doing that. <laughs> Doesn't have anything to do with our salvation. Our salvation is in Christ alone. And we have grace because he became the lamb that was sacrificed for us. So Melchizedek is not a Levite, obviously. For all we know, he's not even Jew. We think, obviously, he was Jesus. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, El Elyon, possessor of heaven and earth. You see, Abram didn't have to worry about how much money he had because God's got it all anyway. Do you understand that if you're a Christian, your father owns everything in the universe? <laughs> He's got it all. So what he gives you is what you need. Because it doesn't tax God to give you what you need. He owns it all. Abram had learned to be content with God's blessing. In fact, we're going to see that in just a minute. So let me not say much about that now. 
And then in verse 20, Melchizedek goes on to say, And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. How do 319 people defeat a coalition of armies that defeat another coalition of armies? How do 319 men alone go and whip them all? They can't. God did it. You see, in our spiritual battles, you don't have the strength to win. Only Jesus has the strength to win. And so you have to trust him. You have to trust Jesus, God Most High, to wage war for you and through you. And again, it's not a physical thing. It's a spiritual thing. So what is the first spiritual step in warfare if we're going to take Stanton and Augusta County for Christ? Prayer. Prayer. And we pray according to Psalms 2 and other places. God, you said all the nations would become the footstool of Christ. And Stanton and Augusta County are part of a nation in the world. Therefore, we claim it for you. We ask you to give us souls for the kingdom here in this place. And when we go to talk to people about Christ, we go not, not scared, not cowering back. We go boldly. That means offensively, but we can go boldly. We can talk to people about who Jesus is. We can give them Jesus. You say, how do I get them to pray the prayer? You don't. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. You tell them about Jesus. And God will bring those that he wants to save to you. If you're willing to do it. You say, I just don't have that many opportunities. No, you just don't notice them. You got them every day. I promise you do. And if you just ask God to help you be part of the, the army that's going to win the world for Christ, he will give you those choices, those, that, that help. Well, Abram has two choices here, and he makes the right choice in both of them. Notice what it says at the end of verse 20. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Just to help clear up your thinking, Abram didn't give him a tenth of his wealth. He gave him a tenth of what he brought back. That's what it's saying. He brought back all the possessions of these cities. This is the king from way up north. And he says, here, take a tenth of it. And he gives it to him. He paid a tithe. In fact, in the New Testament, the writers say, in showing that, that we don't trust the Levitical priesthood for our salvation says Abram even paid a tithe to the order of Melchizedek. Levi did because Levi was in the loins of Abram. They, they count for the kid what the grandfather does. So the great-great-grandfather of Levi pays a tithe. And the Bible says Abram is acknowledging it's not through my lineage. It's through, it is through the lineage, but it's Christ. It's not the human form that we see here. But there's something else here. And then the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Now, I don't know what was in the mind of the king of Sodom. And, and when I'm preaching, I, I, I tell you, this is what the Bible says. But I'll tell you sometimes what I think about it. And this is what I think about it. Because it kind of cracks me up. I think the king of Sodom comes out. Because remember, he couldn't beat the army. He, it says he fled from in front of them. He missed the bitumen pits, thankfully, I guess. So he sees, Mel you know, it says the king of Sodom came out and then the king of Salem shows up. It's almost like he cut in front of the king of Sodom. And so the king of Sodom goes, man, that dude just showed me up. I better do something big. Hey, Abram, man, you, you just keep all that stuff. Just give us the people back. He's trying to be magnanimous. 
Maybe he thought, well, Abram would give at least a tenth back like he did. I don't know. We don't know what was in his mind. But in my mind, the king of Sodom's just trying to get ahead of of Melchizedek. But look what Abram says to the king of Sodom. But Abram said in verse 22 to the king of Sodom, I've lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, to El El Elyon, possessor of heaven and earth. Melchizedek had said those words. Abram repeats them. I serve the God most high and he owns it all. I don't need your junk. You see, in this passage, Melchizedek obviously represents Christ at the very least. But the king of Solomon in these few verses represents Satan. And what does Satan do? He lets you see things that look like gold. All that glitters is not gold, right? In fact, he'll show you something all shiny and it'll look attractive. This is really bad for rednecks. That's why they put fleck paint on bass boats. Sorry, that's a, you might be a redneck joke, but anyhow. And so there's that glittery thing, and the devil wants you to take it, and when you get it, you find out that it's not what it looked like. You see, let me put it in more spiritual terms. When you're looking at something that is sinful, and you start justifying it in your mind, you start saying something about, you know, like, okay, man, and you say, the devil is telling you in your ear and your mind, it's okay, you'll be forgiven. But the minute you succumb to the devil's temptation, he starts screaming in your ear, guilty, guilty, guilty. How can you even be a Christian and do that? Now, by your looks on your faces and you're quiet, and I can't actually see the looks on your faces, you've experienced that. I know I have. The devil offers you something you think will satisfy and be good. Remember, I think last week I was saying, if you're not satisfied in God, you won't be satisfied. And when you want something that God doesn't say you can have or you take this temptation of the devil, you'll find yourself a slave to sin. Habits are formed by choice. I understand that I did not say that clearly last time. Somebody didn't understand what I said. Habits are formed by choice. And why turn on that road if you don't want to go to the end of the road? Once you get on the road, that's where you're headed. And so you have to say no to the things. And, and I don't know what tempts you. I think we're all tempted by, there's a few categories of things that we're tempted by. We're all tempted by something. I'm tempted by about everything. I can resist anything but temptation. I mean, it, that's just how it works. But I'll, I'll tell you one of the most dangerous temptations you got, you carry it around with you. You're a few clicks away from some really bad stuff. And even if it looks good, that's a gossip machine right there. Gossip is saying, telling somebody something they got no right to know or can do nothing about. We call it Facebook, by the way. So if, if you can't get rid of that temptation, get rid of that. Or at least put some high filters on there. You can buy them. Covenant Eyes is a really good one. Men, 
Wives, you ought to encourage your guy and pay for it to get covenant eyes on all the electronics in your household. It, doesn't, it does report on you, but you know what it reports? What you're looking at. <laughs> it takes random screenshots. You don't know when it's doing it. And it sends a report to an accountability partner. He's not going to beat you up. He's not supposed to beat you up about it. But to say, what happened? What was going on here? Let's pray. Let me help you. This is a very dangerous thing. It's scary dangerous. And parents, if you've got kids that got them, guess what? Those kids don't work and didn't buy that. That's your phone. You got the right to look at it. You got the right to take it from them. Let me just give you some parenting tips. You're older and bigger and stronger and wiser. God meant it that way. Kids are smaller, weaker, and stupid. <laughs> it's our job to teach them. Uh, of course, I didn't mean that cruelly, please. I'm just making a, a strong point because I'm stupid as well. I need help. I, I'm, not, I'm not saying they're exclusive in that. But that's what God calls us to do. And you got to be right if you're going to help kids be right. We got to be right. I got to be right as a pastor if this church is going to be right. This church has to be right if we're going to win the world of Christ. We need to come and say no to Satan's offers. And Abram says, I won't take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that's yours lest you should say, I've made Abram rich. I don't, with shekels come shackles. I am not going to let you say you made, Abram's already rich. But you ever known a rich man turn down more riches? There's never been a rich guy went, well, I guess that's enough and quit. <laughs> they always keep going, right? They asked Rockefeller, how much is enough? He said, one more dollar. Just a little bit more. Abram is already wealthy, and now he owns the wealth of this whole region of five cities. He's got it all. And he says, I don't need that. You keep it. Because he is not going to disobey or deny the Lord is God who possesses heaven and earth and gives him all things. He's seen it happen. He took the lesser place and God made him rich there. God then delivers the wealthy place to him and as a sacrifice to God says, I don't want it. Tenth of it went with Melchizedek because we don't know why. <laughs> but he did it. And the rest, you can have it back. Just let the boys that went and fought pay their travel expense. What they got, their food, their lodging, and, and whatever they got, they can keep it. But the rest, you take it back. I don't want it. And then he names those last boys. Abram made the right choice twice. He gave to God and he refused what the devil wanted. There was a, another song I, I love from the late 70s, early 80s, somewhere in their mid-80s. Very simple title, but you can find this verse in the Bible. Love God, hate sin. It's, it's that that's, should be our mindset. And I really believe that. Well, what can we do about all this? Number one, don't move into Sin City. Don't go live in Sin City. Lot was there. It's so easy to go along, to get along, when you're living amongst people that want you to be different. So don't live in Sin City. Don't fill your mind. And that's what I was talking about the phone. Don't fill your mind with things that are going to corrupt your mind. The Bible says in Colossians 3, if you then be risen with Christ, set your mind on things above, not on things on this earth. Because the things of this earth will lead us into sin. The things of God will help us to walk in the Spirit. 
And so in prayer and Bible study, don't live in sin city. Secondly, be thankful there's a deliverer who is Christ. When you repent, you repent toward the cross. I thank God we have a, a cross back there to remind us that our repentance is always toward the cross. That's where don't kiss the sin goodbye comes in. Because sin will grab hold of you. It's like a magnet. You get close to it. Even if you think you have victory over it, if you get close to it, it will suck you in. So stay as far away from sin as you possibly can, especially the thing that tempts you the most. And some of you might would say, well, I don't think we all have something that tempts me the most. Yeah, you do. It's like that lady came down to confess her sin, or came down, preacher said, confess your sin. And she said, I'm not sure what it is. He said, guess at it. And she guessed right the very first time. <laughs> Be thankful we have a deliverer who can deliver us. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of sin and death? But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's number three. Choose your king wisely. Abram chose Melchizedek and rejected Sodom. Lot chose Sodom. In a few chapters, we're going to see what happens. He doesn't escape unscathed. So choose your king wisely. Choose you this day whom you will serve, Joshua said. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord.